It's such an honour, Danny, um, to be a part of this amazing podcast you're doing here. And it's just really cool to be talking about this book. You know my work and you've given it a lot of thought and um, I don't normally get such good questions, to be honest. <laughs> Your podcast is the one that I listen to when I want to listen to an interviewer who has actually read the books she's asking questions about <laughs> and asks really interesting, insightful questions about it. And I think that's really special. Thank you for your wonderful questions. It was a good chat. Great chat. You're a good interviewer. So enjoy listening to the podcast. That's brilliant what you do. Honestly, I'm so in awe and we need more word nerds like yourself, people that are passionate about books. Welcome to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about the magic of books and how they have the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V. In episode 202, Sarah Epstein chats about her novel, Deep Water. Her debut novel, Small Spaces, is a CBCA honour book, winner of the Young Adult Fiction Award in the Adelaide Festival Awards for Literature, winner of the David Award for Best YA Crime Novel, and was shortlisted for another six awards, including the New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, the Queensland Literary Awards, and the Australian Book Industry Awards. Today, I talked to Sarah about her suspenseful new YA mystery, Deep Water, shortlisted for the Queensland Literary Awards. Enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Words and Nerds podcast, Sarah. We last spoke on episode 49 about small spaces. It really doesn't feel that long ago. Yeah, well, I suppose um, it doesn't even feel that long ago in some ways between books for me, but it's actually been two years. So it's probably been two years between podcast episodes. Yeah, I think you're right. And congratulations on Deep Water. I enjoyed it so much and I thought it was just such a, it was slow burning, but page turning, if that makes sense, with some brilliant <laughs> characters. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think it's a slightly different book um, to Small Spaces in that, you know, the genre is slightly different. And so um, I was sort of wondering what readers were going to think of it when they picked it up because um, the pace of Small Spaces in, in certain parts is, um, you know, a little bit breakneck speed and, you know, very, very page turning. But I think um, Deep Water being sort of um, a crime suspenseful mystery, still quite dark um, novel. I think it's page turning in its own way. <laughs> it absolutely is. And you're right. And I was trying to work out, you know, exactly that, exactly what you were talking about. And I don't think books need to be breakneck speed to be page turning. They just need to have that little bit of mystery. And I, I love good characters and the good characters that you want to find out about. So yeah, it, you're right. It was page turning in a different way, but page turning nonetheless. Oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> now, for those who haven't got their hands on deep water, can you give us a quick elevator pitch? Well, um, it's the story of uh, a missing boy called Henry Weaver and uh, and a girl, uh, his friend Chloe Baxter, who is looking for him. Uh, it's told in dual point of view uh, from the perspective of Chloe three months after Henry's disappearance and also from the perspective of Mason Weaver, who is Henry's older brother, uh, in the weeks leading up to the disappearance. So at the core of the story, it's about uh, a missing 13-year-old boy called Henry Weaver and a group of teenagers 
teenagers who know more uh, than they're letting on about the night that he disappeared. There were so many little ideas in the book that I just wanted to pick apart with you. And one of them was the idea of never really knowing someone. So you can grow up with them or you can live with them, but there's always going to be that part where you don't know exactly what's going on inside their heads, regardless of how long you've known them or how well you think you know them. Yeah, that's um, very true and very perceptive of you. Basically, that was what I was trying to do with the story because what I realised as I was writing was that pretty much every single player in the story, every character has their own secret um, that they're keeping from the rest of the group. And, um, and you know, it's just really interesting to explore that because it was a friendship group um, that they grew up with as, as young children all the way through to teenagehood. And yet they're, they're sort of hitting that point in their lives where they are growing up and growing apart a little bit. And um, you've got the character of Sabine in the book who is um, Chloe's best friend. And she's kind of like, I suppose, the mother hen of the group in a way. And she's trying to be um, the glue to keep everybody together. And it's almost um, a bit of a losing battle for her because everybody's growing apart. And then they've had this... Um, you know, this this catalyst of Henry uh, disappearing has sort of grown a wedge into the group and all of a sudden now people aren't really trusting each other as much um, the way they were and everything's changed. And so I thought that was just a really interesting point to kick off a story and look at this group reunited but under these very, very different circumstances um, and have this pressure, I suppose, on on their friendship circle that they've never really experienced before. And do they stick together or do they all sort of fragment apart? I thought it was interesting as well with friends that grow up together, because obviously, you know, people change, particularly, you know, decade, decade after decade, people change and often become very different to who they are. But in some ways, you're exploring the idea of an inability to change or at least um, assumptions being made about you because people have known you for so long. And I thought that was interesting too, particularly with the character Mason. And we find out some interesting things about him throughout the book. And I thought, isn't that interesting that your friendships, you think you'd be able to grow with these people that you've known forever, but often because you have known them for so long, assumptions are made about you that may not always be true. Yeah, and I think probably um, it was really eye-opening for me when I first wrote this, when the very first draft of Deep Water, when I first started writing, it was all from Chloe's perspective. And it was really her observation of their friendship group and this missing friend and um, events that had led up to Henry going missing. And what I realised was that I was so interested in the assumptions she was making about Henry's brother Mason so much so that I really needed to get inside Mason's head and um, explore chapters from his point of view just to help me round out his character. That's all I thought I was doing at first was just to sort of help me understand Mason's motivations in the story and why he does some of the things that he does and then so that I could explain that from Chloe's perspective. And then I realised that what I need to do here is I need the readers to read these chapters from Mason's perspective because they're going to get a very different impression of Mason um, than what Chloe is feeding to them through her narration. So, um, yeah, it's very much uh, they're all, um, 
you know, Chloe's very, very judgmental of Mason and because of the behaviours that he's shown her. But then we see from Mason's chapters that, um, you know, he's and she is making assumptions about him. And from Mason's point of view, we need to see what's happening behind the scenes, what's happening in his home life and what's happening in his head um, and his history to sort of uh, understand why he's behaving the way he is. And so some of those assumptions by some of his friends, um, they're probably a little bit too quick to judge. And even the readers as they first meet Mason might be quite quick to judge and then they sort of get to know him throughout the story more and understand his home situation and understand um, the circumstances with his mother and uh, the kind of situation that Henry was in before he went missing. And so, yeah, I think... It is quite quite interesting to, um, for me, it was very interesting to explore the different friendship group and, you know, f- for everybody to, you know, I think it's interesting for readers, I get feedback about they really enjoyed following Chloe's chapters, but they definitely agree that she's quite um, bossy and, you know, <laughs> forthright and to the point where it's, it's it can be a bit of a flaw, and, which I completely agree with. And I, I wrote her that way purposely because um, I wanted people to see Chloe not as this perfect heroine, this perfect Mary Sue. She can do no wrong and she's fu- you know, she's full of gusto and she's she's driving the story. I did want that to happen, but I also wanted readers to see Chloe from the perspective of other characters and how sometimes the way she acts is not necessarily um, always um, perfect and kind, I suppose, because they're all flawed, you know, and that's that's another part of the story is that, um, you know, everybody has flaws and, um, you know, everybody can make mistakes. And what I'm really interested about from a writing perspective is how far did you get into writing the novel before you knew that you needed another perspective in there? Um, I wrote the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm not a person who tends to write a first draft, you know, just knock it out and say, oh, okay, it's, you know, that's done and that's fine because I'm probably going to revise it 10 times. So I'll just knock this out and whatever, the way it comes out is the way it comes out. Like I, I always go into my first draft thinking this is my only draft and so I want to get it perfect and I do a lot of polishing and editing as I go, um, which is not necessarily how a lot of writers work. You know, they do tend to, their first drafts can be quite rough, whereas mine can be quite polished. And so when I first wrote the story, um, I actually thought that I had nailed it, of course, you know, and I thought, okay, this is great. This is what I wanted to say. And then when I had um, friends um, read it and it had gone to a couple of editors and a couple of agents and I got feedback on it and I realized that I hadn't executed the mystery very well at all (laughs) and it was actually my first novel that I ever wrote Um, not the one now that everyone's reading but this was the very first book that I ever worked on when I decided I was going to write novels and uh, and so yeah it was kind of a book that I really learned how to write with because um, it was definitely not perfect um, the first time around and it probably went through I think two or three major revisions before I put it aside and I thought, that's it, I'm going to put this in the bottom drawer and forget about it and move on. And then eventually, um, I think it was after after I'd started writing Small Spaces 
And Small Spaces, for anyone that hasn't read it, has a non-linear narrative structure where it's sort of broken up into present-day chapters and flashback chapters and also some therapy session transcripts and newspaper articles, actually. And all of that was really fun for me to do to help tell to round out this this mystery this story and so after I'd done that and you know people seemed to respond really well to it with small spaces I suddenly realized hang on I've got an opportunity here to actually retell deep water in a way where I can uh, you know do it in non-linear I can have these sort of converging timelines but more importantly I could have it with um, dual point of view. Um, well, it's actually multiple point of view because there are some chapters from Henry's perspective told in uh, transcript form f- with messages, messaging service. Um, and so, yeah, so that was, so yes, I had written it uh, and given up on it and things like that a few times, and but I could never actually let it go. And I realised that what I'd learnt writing small spaces um I could take those skills and I could take the knowledge that readers really enjoyed small spaces and the way I had structured that and put that together and take all of that and apply it to deep water. And after that, it was actually really, I rewrote it again from the ground up, but it was so much easier to do it because I had a really firm direction. And more importantly, I had this really, really interesting second uh, voice coming through, which was Mason's. I really like the story about putting it in the bottom drawer or, you know, the metaphorical bottom drawer. It just sits on your desktop now, I think. And then yeah. um, <laughs> and then writing Small Spaces, which is kind of your first novel but kind of your second novel, <laughs> if you know what I mean. And then going back to the, the bottom drawer and picking it up and, you know, it's it's such a great book. Do you think because of that experience that maybe not all but many – bottom drawer drafts are salvageable? Well, I was just chatting to somebody about this the other day because my, uh, you know, the, the standard advice is, you know, no, put those books away, put them, you know, sh- shelf them, put them in the drawer, trunk them, whatever, and move on because you wrote them for a reason and if they didn't get anywhere, then that was just the way it was meant to be, you know, and that you, the whole point of writing them was because you were learning how to write and yada, yada, yada. And so I'm a person who I I don't actually agree with that advice because, uh, and case in point, you know, Deep Water is the book that I didn't give up on. Um, I actually wrote Deep Water first and, you know, a few different drafts of that. Then I wrote a contemporary YA novel, which will also hopefully at some point see the light of day. And um, that did the rounds with getting uh, a year. US agent and going on in America. And then having not got anywhere with that, I returned to my slightly darker roots of writing um, a compelling sort of dark mystery, which was, uh, you know, thriller, which was small spaces. So I really don't think anybody should completely give up on something that they've written, especially if they feel really passionately about it. Because in my personal situation, and I'm sure it's the same for anybody who's and trying to do this while juggling families and careers and, you know, day jobs and that sort of thing, is we sacrifice so much time and sleep and energy, you know, family time, social time to actually front up to the computer and write these manuscripts, you know, 75,000, 100,000 word manuscripts. And 
you know, to, to just put that away in a drawer and never think about it again is, you know, that blows my mind because there's definitely something in there that is salvageable. There's gold nuggets in there. And for me, the core of this story has never changed from the first draft I, that I wrote. And so it was just really more the structure, the voice, a couple of the circumstances, a couple of the uh, secondary characters. I nuanced a lot of that sort of thing until I got it singing, basically. And when, you know, it, it, I just, I, the, the core story of, of this missing boy, Henry, never, ever changed. And because there was nothing wrong with that story, it's just that I hadn't figured out how to execute the story properly yet. Um, and so I encourage anybody who's got something in the drawer that they feel really passionately about, they could pull it out and there might be maybe just the first three chapters is something they can work with. Um, or it could be that they could look at creating it in a completely different format. So I don't I don't believe in just giving up on these things. And some some people prefer to do that. They need to make that um, disconnection and to move forward with their writing. But all of the time and effort that I put into these stories, just because I didn't quite have the writing chops or the writing skills to execute them properly, um, sort of, you know, back when I, you know, 10 years ago when I was writing them, doesn't mean that the actual core story or premise or, you know, whatever the characters even um, weren't worth it, you know, worth revisiting. So, so that's something that I'll, I'll continue to do because there's a lot of things that I stopped and started on over the last you know, probably 10 or 12 years. And I like to think they'll all get their day in the sun. <laughs> I really love that because you're right. You always hear, I know, if it didn't work, put it in the bottom drawer and just leave it there. And it just, you know, collects dust, metaphorical dust, of course, or whatever. But I really like the idea of, of giving it that, you know, that second sort of go and then giving it the time in the sun because some ideas or some yeah. books or some characters, you know, they take time to germinate in your brain and you can't mm -hmm. just sort of force that out if it's not ready yet. So I love that story. I think it's a great success story. Yeah. And I was just saying to my husband this afternoon, actually, that um, the story that I'm working on at the moment, I'm, I'm working on another psychological thriller and, you know, they're not... Um, they're not necessarily the easiest books in the world to write. And there's a, a big portion of time is me sitting there seemingly staring at the desk, you know, where I'm, my mind is just ruminating on things and I'm, I'm, I'm working things out in my mind and, and, you know, threads and connections and, and what would be a good twist and this and that. And I write copious amounts of notes and there's so much, you know, daydreaming and, and planning and plotting and things that goes into these things before you even sit down at the keyboard. And, you know, so at the moment I'm going through that, whereas I, I, like, I wish I was getting more words down every day. But because I'm sort of nuancing these scenes as I go and then something else will pop up and I'll think, oh, this is great. And then then I'll, I'll have to jump on YouTube to go looking for, um, you know, some, some um, you know, oh, what's, what, what's, what would it sound like sitting down by a trickling creek? I want to be able to describe that properly. I can't leave my house because I'm in lockdown. So I'm going to sit and listen to some things on some audio on YouTube, you know, and there's all this sort of stuff stuff that you end up doing and of course then you look at your word count at the end of the day and you've got like 200 words <laughs> and you think oh my god I wish I had 2,000 words but you know it's there's just a lot of other stuff that goes into creating these stories that isn't just actually sitting there knocking out words on the on the keyboard and um, more power to anybody that can 
think and write like that as they go. And I suppose that's discovery writing, you know, people who write by the seat of their pants. They're, they've got this fantastic sort of drive to where their mind's clicking over and they're just they're just getting it straight onto the page as it's coming to them. Um, but for me in the type of books that I write, I tend to have to um, really think about things uh, a bit more. And that's why when I do pull something out of the bottom drawer, it's amazing what you can spot straight away, um, having had time apart from it, that you could have been sitting there for months on end, hitting your head on the desk thinking, how can I fix this? And, you know, it could be that you've gone out and read 10 really great novels or you've been watching some really awesome series on on streaming or something and all these stories have been flooding into your mind for months or even years and then you pick up that old work of yours and you can see straight away the way to fix it and, you know, on a more micro level, that's exactly what I do when I'm trapped in a scene and I think, oh, you know, I, I don't quite know how to resolve this or, you know, there's something about this that's bugging me and I, I'm not sure what it is. Or even if you're reading over and over at things and you're thinking I'm missing typos or, you know, the sentence structure, I can't, I can't see the mistakes because I've been looking at it too much. And so I find, you know, it's really great to just put things aside and come back and revisit them and you, you'll spot it straight away what needs fixing. Mm, no, I really find this this process of your writing very interesting and I like hearing about the different ways people write. I mean, I was looking at um, Twitter with Ben Hobson just smashing out the words and I thought, wow, that is so admirable. But then I love hearing exactly what you do. You know, you polish as you go and you stop and you may not write a lot of words, but what you're doing will get you the words the next time you sit down and write. And I really like how there's just no right way to do it because in the end, you know, the books that you, you publish, they're fantastic and they're page turning and the characters are rich and you can't stop reading them. So I love that all these different processes come to make this, this same end. Yeah. And I think if I, if I switch genres, it could be very, it could be completely different again. So I think probably just cause I'm in this crime and mystery genre at the moment, this is sort of the way I write these books, but having written um, a contemporary novel as well, a YA contemporary sort of a coming of age novel, um, a bit lighter, you know, in content, a um, bit more, bit lighter, more fun, more romantic friendships, that sort of thing. And it was a linear narrative, more importantly. Um, I, managed to oh, I could write you know like a chapter a sort of a 3,000 chapter word at, at, like each writing session that I'd sit down so most days you know I could I could knock over a chapter and that is not something I'm able to do with the mysteries and you know with the thrillers it's uh, you know I don't know what it is it's not necessarily that the content being darker is harder to write and or more exhausting to write mentally or anything like that it's just um, there's a lot more uh, balls I've got to keep in the air with writing um, a mystery and with all of the red herrings and the clues and where I'm going to put those and then really looking at the pacing as well um, because, you know, the pacing in these types of stories is so important. And it's really funny how, you you know, you described it as a, a slow-burning page turner because I get comments like from the first week the book came out uh, deep water this is the first book the the first week it came out I read one review that said um, oh this is you know um, a slow 
I think it was described as slow burn, slow pace or something like that, um, or takes a little while to get going. And then somebody else gave a review saying, this is just breakneck right from page one. And I thought, isn't that interesting that two readers had such a different um, reading of it? Because I think it is probably more like my books tend to be, you know, there's a lot of information and a lot of clues and things that I'm dripping through in the beginning. And then the halfway point, they really, I I think they start to pick up. And then, of course, by the last third, it's like I can't put it down now. I have to finish it. That's what I like to think anyway. Um, So for some people to sort of describe them as being go, go, go right from the start, almost to the point where they say it's an exhausting read, excuse me, um, then, I, you know, and other people say, oh, look, it took a while to get going or it took a while for me to get into it. Um, yeah, it's it's just all reading preference, I suppose. And, mm. yeah, it's quite, quite interesting to hear the different uh, reactions. It is interesting. And I think I'm right smack bang in the middle because, you know, when I say slow burning, I don't mean slow paced. I just meant it um, – I don't know, what did I mean? <laughs> I guess, yeah, like you said, <laughs> you were building up. You were building up to, you know, what was happening. But at no point did I think I needed to put this down. Down, you know, and I think Mason, I think mm. you're absolutely right. The the character of Mason, he was actually one of my favourite characters and I'm so glad that his perspective ended up in the book because I think it was such a great juxtaposition between the two characters. And as well as that, I think you're right, you really had to get inside Mason's head and in his family to really understand where he was coming from. Otherwise, you know, you might, as we talked earlier, make these assumptions about him that you, you you would only make if you didn't live inside his head. Mm, yeah, and I think with um, in terms of Mason's perspective being, I think, quite interesting for teens to read, um, another thing that also um, talks to the pacing and things of, of YA novels is, you know, the, with um, teenage readers, you you could lose them at any point. And so um, something that goes into the construction of these um, thrillers and things that I write is I'm picture I put myself in their position to start with and I think, well, where am I, you know, where am I going to lose them? Where are they going to find the point where they're going to put the book down to go and have dinner or something <laughs> else, but then not necessarily think I'm going to rush back to pick that up again? Um, because I'm competing with them going back online to be, you know, be gaming with their mates or to um, to go and get online on chat or whatever, or just play on their Switch or anything, um, or watch, obviously watch Netflix or, you know, something on streaming. So I'm competing with all of these sort of digital media all the time and so I need my stories to be compelling enough that that's what they want to come back to and pick it up and you know I've had feedback from readers where they've said oh you know I read it in one sitting which is such a huge compliment and also somewhat depressing because it took so long to write I always say please read it again um but they do. That's the thing, though, because I get I have readers that tell me they've read it three times. You know, it's their favourite book. You know, with small spaces or, or you know, that um, deep water and small spaces are my favourite books and all this. And I just think that is amazing. You know, and that's with all the the difficulties that I'm having at the moment trying to write this new. Um, psychological thriller with kind of pandemic brain where I'm feeling, you know, somewhat flat and, um, you know, it's it's sort of like I, I just remember who's reading it and that's, uh, you know, and, and they're waiting for another one, you know, and they, they're dying for it, you know, and that's that really helps me 
keep it keeps me driven Mm, that's nice I like that and look I read it in two sittings I hope that's okay but you know I have deadlines so (laughs) (laughs) I have to read it before I speak to you so you know I'm I'm turning those pages very fast (laughs) (laughs) Uh, small spaces is going to hit the screen tell me about this this is such exciting news yeah so this is news that um I've actually been sitting on for quite some time um, because, you know, everything in this industry moves so slowly. Um, We had, when was the first inquiry? I think it was probably almost about 12 months ago. um, We had an inquiry from uh, an Australian film producer who was inquiring about the rights. So he he found out about the book via uh, a producer friend who he has in America and she had read the book. She'd heard about the book and read it. And they were looking for um, something to collaborate on together. Um, and, you know, I, I guess an Australian project. And so she contacted him and said, hey, you know, find out if the rights for this are still available. Because at this point, Small Spaces had actually been uh, on bookshelf, bookshelves probably for about 18 months, I think. So um, it, it wasn't like this was all happening back when, you know, the book was first um, released or anything like that. So, you know, there's all those books that you see sitting on shelves right now, they're still possible movie deals in their future, you know. So it's not like it all has to happen when they're a new release. Um, and so... Uh, Rebecca, um, she heard about the book when it was um, shortlisted for the CBCA Book of the Year Awards. And so she had read uh, a blog post over in the US um, about the books that had been shortlisted. And she's, you know, she because she'd been looking for a project to do with Christian, she sort of thought, oh, I might check these out. And so when she read the um, synopsis for Small Spaces, she thought, oh, this sounds like a good project because she was uh, a movie producer on the uh, the horror flick It Follows. And I'm not sure if you've seen that, but it's fantastic. It's super creepy. Um, and Christian worked on The Babadook here in Australia. So they are two horror films that I've seen in recent years that I absolutely loved. So I could not believe, you know, <laughs> these fantastic producers who'd worked on these awesome movies were actually interested in my little old book. That sounds amazing. Well, lock me in for that movie night. I'll be there. Yay. <laughs> uh, Sarah, why do you write? Well, hmm, that's a good question. I suppose I started writing when I was a teenager and the reason why I did it back then was because something that is sort of inherently in me is I I see myself as an entertainer and I like to entertain people with you know, just just even stories, just verbal stories, you know, when I'm recounting something that happened to me and I get a kick out relaying the story and getting the getting a good reaction and and I think I get this from my dad because my dad, um, he passed away a couple of years ago. He was a musician his whole life. So even though he was a mechanical engineer by day, he'd always been a performer. So he was always, uh, he was in a vocal, a singing, a singing group, a vocal group, and they used to tour around um, New South Wales and interstate and things like that to all the RSL um, clubs and and things, um, putting on this this vocal act, singing and a bit of comedy and all of that. And my dad did that for my entire life. So apart from obviously when he got a bit older, he sort of retired from it. 
And I'd always just really, you know, and funnily enough, he was actually quite introverted, you know, but he was, when he got on stage, when he was an entertainer, um, he just knew how to switch it on. And he, he was just in, in his, in the mode, you know, to in, in the, um, just had that vibe of being able to entertain people. And I suppose my storytelling comes from him because he's always been like that. He's always been the perfect host and we'd always have parties and things like that. And my dad would always be the one telling jokes and, 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 you know, getting everyone together and making sure everyone's glass was full and just that whole, um, that thing of just keeping people happy and entertained. And so that sort of storytelling, that verbal storytelling, I think I, I get from him. And so even when I was a teenager, I was always writing, thinking someone's going to read this and be really entertained by this one day. And of course, nothing that I wrote when I was a teenager, I ever saw the light of day. I, I wouldn't let anyone read it, you know. And so I would sort of hide it all away. And sometimes, and it was all long, you know, it was all written longhand on old exercise books and things like that, because I didn't even have a computer back then. Um, and then uh, I wrote a short story for my English teacher, uh, well, for English, and my English teacher gave it back and she'd given it 100% mark and she said, this is, you know, uh, this is so compelling, I actually can't wait to find out what happens next. And that to me was, that was the seed that started the storytelling in me, which then would not come out for probably another, you know, sort of almost 30 years, I suppose, before maybe 25 years when I started writing um, with publication in mind when I was sort of in my early 30s. So, um, but where I, I picked up where I left off. So when I sat down and decided that I wanted to write um, was when I was at home with my my eldest son, who was a baby. And when he was napping, I'd sit in the armchair and I'd pull out my exercise book, just like I did when I was a teenager. And I thought, right, I really want to write a story because I really want to entertain people with stories. Where do I start? And so I started writing um, a continuation of that, that scene that I wrote for that short story that my, my English teacher had loved all those decades before. And so the voice that was coming through was a 16-year-old girl because that was the voice that I was using when I was a teenager. And I realised how comfortable I was writing um, for te- you know, the, in that teenage voice. And then I discovered that there was this whole reading readership, this whole category called YA, and that my voice would fit perfectly in that category. And so then I started developing um, this this mystery. And so the real drive of the whole thing of why I write is um, it's not for accolades. It's not for, you know, trying to get onto shortlists or get movie film deals or anything like that. It is purely because I just love entertaining people. I want people to just sit there and read, have this page turning read and put it down and have just been swept away to to another place and just be entertained. So my my work in that case comes across, well, I think it's very genre and very commercial fiction um, because that's sort of the way I write, but it's the sort of stories that I write because that's the sort of stories that I enjoy reading myself. So I suppose that's a very long-winded answer um, to the question, why do I write? But I, I, I write because I, I write to entertain. <laughs> I like those long answers because I think, you know, they're often the most true answers and there's not often just a simple answer as to why people write. And I like how it goes back to your childhood of your father and, you know, that's it's about storytelling and it, 
it doesn't matter that his mm. entertainment was different. It's about entertainment and it's about storytelling and it's about connecting with human beings so I, I think it's a great answer so thank you and look thank you so much for chatting with me again Sarah I, I, I love speaking to authors again if I've already spoken to them before because you know you can see the journey of what's happened and you can talk about the past things that you've done so I love having people on again and I loved seeing you know what you've come up with this time and I, I so look forward to whatever you've got happening next because I love small spaces I still remember it very well I really enjoyed deep water Water. And I think I said on Twitter, amazing, you've just done it again. <laughs> and there, there were just. Well, that's really good to hear. Yeah, the pressure was on. So I'm, mm. that's really great to hear. <laughs> I imagine. But yeah, I thought there were so many threads that you brought together in the end. And, and my favourite part of Deep Water were just those really rich characters. And characters always do it for me. So uh, <laughs> thank you for writing it. And thank oh, you for chatting yes, to me again. Well, you're welcome. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's great to chat. And it'll be really interesting for me. I, I should go back and listen to our first chat because, you know, we, if we do this every couple of years it'll be really great to see the way my career you know I can track my career by my my words and nerds podcast absolutely um, sounds yeah, wonderful it's um yeah <laughs> well it's a date we should do it um but yeah thanks for asking me on and I'm just really really glad that you enjoyed the new book thanks Sarah